All right. Well, welcome back to the show. Uh, today we have with us Dr. John Walton. Dr. Walton, thanks for uh, being with us. My pleasure. How are you doing? Doing very well. A little cold here in Chicago, but... Uh, yeah, we got pretty cold in Houston, too. I think last night we were down to around 40 or so. Um, <laughs> I imagine Chicago is much the same. Yeah, exactly exactly the same. Imagine that. Uh, <laughs> oh, wait, wait. Minus 40. Wins <laughs> yeah. My uh, my kids actually got to play in some snow yesterday, but it wow. was because at a, a birthday party at a local park, someone had actually rented a snow machine and it had created some artificial snow for us. That's nice. Which that's the only snow my five year old has ever seen in his entire life. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> well, we play in the snow all the time here. Yeah. <laughs> well, um. I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about one of your books that is not your most recent book, but has been perhaps so far one of the more influential to me, um, Ancient Near Eastern Thought in the Old Testament. It's an interesting book to talk about. I get into those conversations all the time. Yeah? Okay, well, good. Um, a lot of the people that I've been talking to, you know, this podcast is dedicated to trying to understand the cultural context of the Bible, have had more of a New Testament focus. You know, there's a lot of interest in the Jewishness of Jesus and those sorts of things. But I think mm -hmm. nothing has influenced my understanding of the Old Testament world quite as much as um, this book of yours. I, it was really foundational for me to try to grasp that cultural context. Well, that's the stuff I wanted to get into because it's very difficult to penetrate the, the ancient world and the way that people thought back then. Yeah, I, I'm kind of a philosophy guy by background, and I first started trying to figure out what to read in this space by searching for, like, ancient Near Eastern philosophy, and, and they just don't use the same terminology, right? I mean, you can't find stuff on Hebraic philosophy, per se, or, you know, using words like epistemology and metaphysics, but... Um, there is a new book uh, called Philosophy Before the Greeks, Really? That is really about epistemology in the ancient world. So there are some things that are starting to appear. That just came out uh, within the last year. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I had not seen that one. But um, somehow I stumbled into your work, and it really was a, a good avenue into how to think about the Babylonian mindset, the Egyptian mindset. Although I think trying to understand the Egyptian concept of what makes a person the Ba and the Ka and all of that it is quite possibly the most difficult thing I've ever tried to understand. I, I still don't think I get those. No, it's, it's not straightforward, and we're still not sure that we're explaining them right. Yeah. You know, um, and Egyptologists struggle with ways to communicate. That's one of the problems in uh, bridging across to the ancient world. That sometimes we just don't have the, the terminology to express the ideas. Right. Yeah, well, when you mention terminology, that act actually is one of the things that I think has stuck most with me. And I don't believe this was from your book. This may have been from a recorded lecture you did at a college somewhere that I found on iTunes U or something like that. But you made a point of um, the way that God communicates to people using their language. And you have to understand the, the point he's trying to make, given what that word meant in their context. And it's not always the way we would literally translate it. And I, I think the example that you used was... Uh, some verses in the Old Testament that we may translate with uh, phrases like love God with all of your mind. And the, the Hebrew is more literally something like love God with all of your guts or intestines or innards. And it, right. it was because that worldview thought that the center of your conscious thought was in your innards. 
Right. And, and it's not that literal definition of innards that's important to us. It's the concept of love God with all of your mind and your, your thoughts. Whatever you think with, that, that's what you should love God with. Right. Right. Well, so um, let's start with names. I, I was in a, a small group in my church. We call them life groups where we do kind of small group Bible studies. And somebody asked recently, why does God have so many different names in the Bible? And I don't remember exactly what I said, but it was some attempt at paraphrasing, I think, your answer in, in your book. But you talk a lot about the importance of names in ancient cultures, names in creation and the way those relate to roles and functions and destinies. Um, how How is that different than the way we use names today? Well, I think they took it a lot more seriously. Uh, to them, to attach a name to something uh, was something that kind of hung on to you. Uh, it's something that uh, had some actual powerful role in your life and in uh, in your destiny. Um, the name also gave a sense of kind of your role and function. When that comes to God, that's really important because the more names a God had, the more that communicated something about their power and their their multitude functions. Mm. The very well-known Babylonian creation epic called Enuma Elish, it really ends with a, a listing of Marduk's 50 names. Mm. And to have 50 names, wow, that's that's just incredible. And then later interpreters of the Babylonian material, Babylonians interpreting, uh, tried to find additional meaning hidden in those words, in those 50 names, to find even more about the power of Marduk. Yeah, that's interesting. We've uh, done some series at my church going through the names of God, and it is fascinating how many of them there are and how they each do have a meaning. I mean, it's not just uh, the way we might think of a proper name today, but relate to the, the specific roles and the spe specific actions that God performs. Yeah. It's, in some ways, it's like um, when you think of somebody today who's in a, in a corporation, and they have the title that describes their role and their status, mm. uh, their power in that corporation. And if you had uh, several aspects where you had jurisdiction and authority, you might have several titles that express that. Yeah. And so imagine somebody in a company who had 50 titles. You know, of course, they'd be going crazy with all the work <laughs> they had to do. But that would say uh, volumes about their importance and their role. Yeah. Yeah, that's helpful. Well, and, and let's talk about the temple a little bit. Um, this is one that I think has perhaps fascinated me the most, is you can kind of trace through uh, the idea of the relationship between heaven and earth. But when you talked about the temple representing sacred space and, and tying that to sort of the, the Genesis 1 narrative, tell us a little bit about how you see the role of the temple in ancient Israel. Sure. Um, the temple in the ancient world as a whole is specifically the place where God dwells on earth. And so it's, it's not a, not designed to be a place of worship like our churches are, but designed to be a place of presence. Uh, therefore, of course, some worship activities took place there, but that's because the deity was present. Uh, the presence of the deity is what makes it sacred space. I mean, it's not sacred before the deity's there. It's sacred space because the deity's there. You might remember in um, 
when Jacob has his dream at, at Bethel. He says, wow, this is sacred space, but I didn't know it hmm. because God had established his presence there. So that, that's, that's what we mean when we talk about sacred space. It's a place of God's presence, and therefore the temple kind of marks sacred space because the deity is dwelling there. So that's the temple idea. Now, what when we get back to Genesis 1, I try to build the idea that in Genesis 1, God is ordering the cosmos to be a place where he will dwell. He's planning on moving in and living here. And therefore, the temple is going to, I'm sorry, the cosmos is going to function as sacred space like a temple does. Um, and so it's going to be sacred because of God's presence. Um, the Garden of Eden is a place of God's presence. And therefore, that's sort of like the Holy of Holies where God is, is dwelling. And so this idea that um, creation is not just about material stuff coming into being. It's about a purpose and a role that God has intended for the cosmos. And so when God rests, um, the idea is that he takes up his residence. Um, you don't pick that up so much in Genesis 1, uh, because there it uses a word that talks about ceasing, Shabbat, Sabbath, uh, ceasing what he was doing. But as soon as Exodus 20 talks about it, it uses a different word which talks about a place of his rest. And so God has taken up a place of his rest. And if you look in a place like Psalm 132, uh, it talks about the fact that the temple is God's resting place. And it's a place where he therefore rules. Because God's rest is not disengaging. It's rather engaging and um, kind of keeping everything ordered the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to me when you carry that forward even into the New Testament, then you start to get comments where Jesus refers to himself as the temple. And then after sure. the ascension where the church becomes the temple and our bodies are, you know, a part of the temple. And I think sometimes we don't know what to do with that. And um, I've heard Christians talk about the body being the temple. I think, like you said, connecting it more to the idea of worship, perhaps. Whereas if you think of it as the, the presence of God. Sure. The word became flesh yeah. and and dwelt among us in temple kind of form. Hmm. Uh, and again, we are now the temple. All of those having to do with the presence of God. Right. So that's that's the key issue here. Um, and I see basically the whole span of Scripture, Old and New Testament alike, Genesis to Revelation, as being tracking the concept of God dwelling among his people and being in relationship with them yeah. through all of its different phases. Well, and you mentioned that the rest is not just rest the way we might think of relaxation or something, but it ties to God's rule. And I think you see that, too, with like Jesus, uh, you know, the, the Lord's Prayer, talking about your kingdom come, it, it, bringing the rule of God, the reign of God to earth as well through his presence. Sure. And in Matthew, come to me, Jesus says, all you who are, you know, work hard, you're heavily burdened, and I will give you rest. Yeah. That's not extra naps. <laughs> Um, that's that's a new level of order and existence in the kingdom of God. Hmm. And so in that sense, rest is the opposite of unrest, not the opposite of activity. Hmm. So when God tells Israel, I'm going to give you rest from your neighbors all around, that's not that's not downtime. 
Um, that's the idea that he is resolving any unrest that they might experience so they can live life the way that uh, they they could, not being interrupted and invaded and all of those sorts of things. Yeah. So then if we understand a temple as a place of the deity's presence, in your book you also talk a bit about Babylonian ziggurats. Mm -hmm. Are they a similar concept? Well, the ziggurat is part of sacred space. When you look at, you know, believe it or not, the Babylonians named their ziggurats. And when you look at the names of the ziggurats, you find that each one of them is identified as sacred space. And those names help us to identify the function of the ziggurats. And the ziggurats were, like I said, part of the temple complex. Uh, they were not the temples themselves. They were built next to temples. The temple was where the god took his, up his residence and was worshipped. But the ziggurats provided the staircase, we could call it the executive elevator, um, where the god would come down from heaven into his temple to be worshipped. They also had a little structure at the top called a gigunu. Don't you love Babylonian words? The gigunu, um, which was the kind of the residential quarters for the god. The, the temple was the public area, the, the audience chamber, the, the throne room, all of those things. But the gigunu at the top of the ziggurat was the residential section. So when the god needed downtime, they would take the god, the image, they would actually take the image, up the stairs and into the gugunu, and there they would bathe it. They would play beautiful music for it, maybe have a little snack, things of that sort. And so the, the ziggurat served this dual function, both providing the, the, the passageway, the stairway, the portal uh, into the temple, but also providing sort of some residential quarters. Hmm. So they were very much part of God's presence. When, when the Babel, Tower of Babel builders were building a ziggurat, it wasn't so they could go up. It was to invite God down so that he might dwell among them. They're trying to reestablish God's presence, which was lost at the Garden of Eden. Hmm. And people wanted it back. No surprise. And so the, the Tower of Babel was a ziggurat built to try to invite God to come down and dwell among them again. Yeah, I think that discussion of the Tower of Babel as a ziggurat is one of the things that has really stuck with me the most out of the book. And I, I, I don't know why. that We don't often focus on the Tower of Babel story as super significant. But that really resonated with me. And maybe it's because I think historically a lot of Christians have not known what to do with that story. You know, it well, seems exactly. like a, a very odd story. And, and you do get a lot of interpretations that say they were trying to mount an assault into heaven, you know, trying to march up the tower to get into heaven or something. And so, yeah, that idea that instead they were trying to entice the gods back down, so to speak, mm -hmm. is very different. And again, the reason why it's been interpreted so widely and I would say so inaccurately is because people lost an understanding of what ziggurats were. Yeah. You know, people for hundreds and hundreds of years didn't have any idea what a ziggurat was or what tower they were building. And it's really the ancient Near Eastern uh, texts that have given us renewed insight into what the ziggurats were mm. and can help us interpret this passage better. You're right, it's a key passage, because once you understand that they're trying to get God's presence back, then it serves as kind of a bookend with the Eden story. Mm -hmm. Eden, it was lost. Here, Tower of Babel, they're trying to get it back. 
it also serves then as a bridge across to the covenant in Genesis 12. Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, Genesis 12, the covenant. And now we can see that the covenant was God's counter-initiative. The people at Babel had made an initiative to try to bring God's presence back. God wanted his presence back, but not that way. Hmm. And so the covenant is his counter-initiative to establish a relationship with people, Abraham and his family, that would lead then, by the end of Exodus, to the building of the tabernacle, where God would dwell among that group of people, his covenant people. And therefore, the Tower of Babel becomes central to this whole movement of the theology of God's presence. We could call it Emmanuel theology. Well, so elaborate a little bit on, you said, not that way. If God wants to establish his presence on earth, he clearly comes across in Genesis 11 as not being very happy with what they did there. What was wrong about that way? Well, the text tells us, but we haven't often understood what it was saying. We read the line that they wanted to make a name for themselves. And we kind of just kind of make that some vague concept of this overweening pride that was encroaching on divine boundaries. And that misses the point. Um, On the whole, making a name could be something that was negative, but it could also be something that was positive. You make a name in the ancient world and in the Bible by anything that will cause you to be remembered. Sometimes that could be good things. Sometimes it could be you know, adventures and exploits, sometimes building projects, sometimes notorious deeds, um, nefarious actions, but it could be any number of things. But the main way people make a name for themselves is by having children, because it's children, it's your descendants who are going to remember you. So making a name itself is not bad. What's the problem here is that they are using, they want to use the renewal of sacred space as a means to make a name for themselves. See, now you wouldn't have known that if you didn't know that a ziggurat was sacred space. Hmm. But once we know that a ziggurat is sacred space, and that's what they're trying to get back, now to use sacred space to make a name for themselves is all backwards, because sacred space is supposed to be making a name for God. It's supposed to be exalting his name. Hmm. But they're using it to make a name for themselves. Now, how would they do that? Well, they would do that by the thing that I, well, they would think that way by means of what I call the great symbiosis. And I don't use that phrase in the book you're talking about, Ancient Near Eastern Thought, because I hadn't thought of it yet. But <laughs> the, the great symbiosis is this idea that I do mention in the book that in the ancient world, people believed that the gods had created people because the gods had needs. And they were tired, sick and tired of meeting those needs on their own. And so they had decided to create people as those who would feed them sacrifices, house them, temples, you know, give them beautiful clothing, play them wonderful music, pamper them in every way. In turn, of course, if they took care of the gods, then the gods would have to take care of them if the gods wanted to continue being taken care of. So I call this the great symbiosis, this um, this mutual codependency that exists between the gods and humans. Of course, the Bible doesn't have any tolerance for that kind of thinking, but that's how it was in the ancient world. Once you know that, you can come back to this idea of making a name for themselves. That is, they wanted to get sacred space back, not for the right reasons, because God is God and this is the way we want to honor him. They wanted to get sacred space back because 
then if they took care of the God, the God would take care of them and they would be prosperous and wealthy and healthy and successful in every way mm. to make a name for themselves. Yeah. But again, you, you miss that whole possibility if you don't understand what a ziggurat is and you don't understand how sacred space works and you don't understand the great symbiosis. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, it, and you touched on something else that has been an interest of mine, um, which is this idea of food. I don't know a more eloquent way to transition into it other than you, you talked about the, the gods of the ancient Near Easterns wanting people to do things like help feed them. And of course, we see things like sacrificial systems where there were beliefs that the gods literally ate the food that was given on the altar and things like that. And yet the Bible seems to have no tolerance for that either. You know, Correct. Yahweh is never seen as eating the sacrifices. Correct. And yet what we get is really the reverse, where in a number of ways, God over and over again provides food for his people rather than yes. demanding that they provide food to him. Right. Uh, when we get to Israel, rather than talking about the great symbiosis, this mutual codependence uh, based on need on both parties, I talk about that being replaced by the covenant symbiosis. Hmm. The covenant symbiosis is that in much the same way that the ancient Near Eastern gods were thought to be providing the needs for people, that worked similarly. But in terms of Israel providing needs for Yahweh, no, he doesn't have any needs. And what they are required to do is not feed him, but they're supposed to keep the law, keep Torah, keep his place holy. Hmm. And so the equation is changed. In, in terms of keeping Torah, that, that's another thing that seems quite different from surrounding cultures. If I recall correctly, a lot of the uh, nearby cultures in the ancient Near East did not necessarily connect what we might think of as moral or ethical guidelines with their religious rituals. The, the gods didn't seem very interested in that. Correct. The gods were interested in their needs being met. And uh, that meant that uh, lots of the religious uh, sense and obligation in the ancient world was ritual, because it was the rituals that met the needs of the gods. Um, they did care about justice, but for a different reason. They care, as, as, I can, as best I can figure it out, they cared about justice because justice meant that society was going to run smoothly. And when society ran smoothly, people could live their lives and grow their food and live in their houses and they could take care of the gods. If people were struggling with all kinds of chaos and anarchy, then they wouldn't be able to focus any attention on the gods and the gods wouldn't be taken care of. So the gods have a vested interest in justice, not because justice is important to them in theory, but because in the actual practical outworking of life in the ancient world, uh, things worked better for the gods when there was justice. Hmm. And that seems like a pretty natural sort of anthropomorphic step from what the needs of the people would have been. I, I think it's harder for us to relate with a full refrigerator and a 401k to the um, sort of desperate day-by-day -day need for order instead of chaos. But it seems like a very driving motivation in those ancient cultures was how do we create order and function out of chaos and anarchy because chaos and anarchy is just, you know, on the other side of the desert um, or just one famine away. Well, sure, just ask the Syrian refugees hmm. today if they care about order and justice, you know. They're living that, that life and that would be the thing that they would hope for. Yeah. It's only because we 
don't really have a threat to those things that our attention wanders. Yeah. Before we leave the ziggurat concept altogether, you had briefly mentioned Jacob's dream. And I thought that was another interesting connection because we hear a lot of the same language there where Jacob sees a stairway up to heaven and the messengers of God ascending and descending and he calls it the the place of God, Bethel. And so that that was sort of interesting to me because just a, you know, a little while longer after the, the Tower of Babel story where, um, you know, you see that God does not want that physical structure. Like you said, he does not want uh, the people trying to reestablish sacred space in that way. You get the covenant with Abraham, and then later you get the story with Jacob, where very similar imagery of God, God's presence on earth is used, again, with the, the stairwells and such. Uh, and, of course, in that context, um, God tells Jacob that he will provide for him. You know, it's not Jacob's going to provide for God. God will provide for Jacob as he leaves the land and God will bring him back to the land and all the covenant blessings uh, that are reiterated at the end of chapter 28. Um, the portal idea is common in the ancient world and the Israelites have that too. And that's, that's there in Jacob's dream, this portal between heaven and earth and that the messengers of God use it to come up, go up and down. Again, in, in my kid's Bible when I was growing up, uh, the picture of that was like an angel parade. They come, you know, every, an angel in each step. They come to the bottom, just turn around, go back up, turn around and come back down. And that's certainly not the picture here. Jacob finds himself looking at a portal that messengers of God, angels, messengers of God, are using to go off on their on their assigned tasks and to return with their reports to go up and down. And so this is a portal between, and any such portal therefore establishes sacred space. And so it's he says, boy, this is where a portal is. This is sacred space. So he calls it Bethel, house of God here, and the gate of God, which would have been at the top of it, mm. um, going into, into heaven. And it's there that God reiterates to him, not the great symbiosis, but the covenant symbiosis. Yep. Well, so let's let's hit on one last topic I want to be sure to get to before we run out of time. Uh, I joked at the beginning of the episode about not being able to understand the Egyptian concept of what makes up a human. But let's at least talk for a minute about the Hebrew concept. You go into a couple of words in the book, uh, ruach and nefesh. Talk to us a little bit about how we should see those words and, and maybe if there's anything important uh, about that concept that would be different than what we might normally read into the Bible using our more modern ideas of body and soul. Well, again, they, they really cannot be translated soul and spirit. I mean, that's it's it's typical that nefesh, less so these days, but some contexts nefesh is translated soul. Other times it's translated life or self. Uh, ruach is often translated spirit, as in the spirit of the Lord, but sometimes it's translated wind or breath. Um, and But they really don't equate to English terms or English concepts at all. And so that makes it quite difficult. Um, the Ruach is somewhat ethereal, uh, unseen, yet has a noticeable effect. And that's the same as wind and things of that sort. And so uh, even in Jesus' comment in John 3, you know, the wind goes here and there, and you never know where it came from. Um, so... Uh, so in that sense, Ruach is a different sort of thing. It's the, it's the energizing force that, uh, that people have. Uh, the spirit in a person is given by God and it returns to God at death, not in the sense of going to heaven, but this is the, the energizing, uh, force that God gives to a living being, including humans. 
And so that's the direction that Ruach goes. Mm-hmm. Nefesh, um, you know, a person doesn't have a nefesh. They are a nefesh. Uh, and that's different. You know, when we use soul, we talk about we, uh, having a soul. But again, nefesh is, is more like your, your self. I mean, uh, Hebrew is not using that in some kind of platonic or even theological sense. The nefesh goes to the netherworld when a person dies, whereas the ruach, the spirit, returns to God. Um, the nefesh is more like a human being's personal identity. So is it the nefesh that, that would exist in Sheol? Uh, yes, it goes to Sheol, correct. Hmm. So that's how they set it up. Again, not easily equatable to Platonic terminology. Yeah. Okay, well, so let's close out with where people can go to find more information. Okay. So there, there are books you can get to. Um, the one that you've mentioned, Ancient Near Eastern Thought. Uh, I also was involved in a um, IVP, Bible Background Commentary on the Old Testament which gives a lot of this kind of information, a more extensive Zondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary, five volumes, lovely pictures, lots of footnotes to direct you other places, and uh, a work a product that's just getting ready to come out in the next uh, several months, um, a cultural background study Bible, where I did the Old Testament and Craig Keener did the New Testament. So these are all places where you can get this information, Uh, People can also try to find me on Vimeo and YouTube. I've got plenty of links all over uh, those sites uh, with uh, talks that I've given. All right. Well, that's great. Thanks again, Dr. Walton, for spending the time on the show. Okay, Jason. Good to talk to you. All right. Goodbye. Bye. All right. That wraps up Episode 6 of the DustCast. I want to thank Dr. Walton for joining. His work truly has influenced my understanding of the Old Testament worldview more than anything else. I had a bit of an internet issue this time, so I hope that if you were able to detect any echoes or other irregularities in the sound that it wasn't too distracting. As always, you can go to thedustcast.com for show notes. I'll put up links to a few of Dr. Walton's books and the music that I used on the episode. You can shoot me an email, jason at thedustcast.com, or connect over Twitter or Facebook. And of course, be sure to subscribe on iTunes to get uh, the future episodes automatically. If you like what you hear, leave a rating or a review. Thanks a lot.